From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. After an unprecedented three-week layoff mid-season, the Gators returned to the field and the swamp to take on Missouri last week, with fireworks of all kinds taking place over the course of the night. On today's show, we'll delve into Florida's performance against Missouri, the altercation that grabbed headlines, and what it all means for Florida, Georgia, and Jacksonville with FloridaGators.com senior writer Scott Carter. Then, we'll spend some time with redshirt freshman running back Naquan Wright and learn how he came mere centimeters from death on his path to becoming a Gator. But first, Florida's return to action after a scary COVID outbreak showed that in many ways, they never missed a beat, as Scott Carter notes that a slow start was offset by a rather quick course correction. Well, they got the end result they wanted, Adam, obviously. Um, you know, they, they have the first couple of drives and we're so used to them rolling into the end zone, so they have to settle for a couple of field goals there uh, early in the first quarter, and you're thinking, okay, I mean, you know, a little rushing us there, which is to be expected. I thought that they looked fine on offense. It's just once they got to the red zone, they kind of sputtered a couple of times, but you felt like, you know, they were doing, they were moving the ball. If it had been a different story where they came out and had to punt a couple of series, maybe that would have uh, been a, a warning sign. So I, I think overall, Adam, with really where they were coming from, considering the layoff, unprecedented situation with three weeks between games, yeah, I, I think they passed the test. They obviously knew that Missouri uh, was going to be, you know, a, a kind of a, a just a unique game. I mean, because of all the circumstances we've talked about, and I think there was a lot of uncertainty there, uh, and it did take them a little while to get going to warm up. But I think those two touchdowns by Kadarius Tony, you know, changed the, the tone of the game, uh, especially after the interception when Trask got hit. At that point, they're trailing. But then those plays by Tony just energized the team. That The first one, I mean, that was a play that there's only one guy in the stadium the other night who could have done that. And it was Kadarius Tony. And it got the crowd fired up, got the team fired up. And then, of course, we all know what fired up the team right before halftime. That, if, the, if Tony's two touchdowns changed the complexion of the game, well, that uh, the the skirmish at the end of the first half, that changed, I guess, it, it turned the game upside down. And uh, the Gators were on top, as it as it were, after that. And the, you know, overall, you know, Dan Mullen this week on his SEC coaches conference call said that he thought they got better as the game went on, and that was the first game this year that he, he said they'd done that. So I think after he watched film and stuff, he saw a lot of improvement from the first quarter to the fourth quarter, and that is exactly the, the trajectory they were hoping as they go into the Georgia game. Well, and you mentioned Kadarius Tony, who really changed the game there at the end of the first half. I mean, Missouri was leading that game, and then yeah. all of a sudden Tony went to work and, and just flipped the whole script. Um, and I know we've talked about him, you know, in, in recent weeks, but I just continue to be amazed by uh, he's starting to truly warrant 
the Percy Harvin comparisons. And and early on, those were like, okay, well, he looks like Percy Harvin, but now he's doing things that I don't think we've seen anybody do at Florida since Percy Harvin. So, you know, yeah. he's not he's he's different, right? He's built a little bit differently. He's probably a bit smaller, but then maybe a bit shiftier. So that comparison feels maybe more apt after this week than, than it even did prior. I think you're right. I, I would say uh, he's just become more of a complete player. Mm. Uh, he's done this consistently in that through four games. And, you know, in the first three seasons at Florida, we would see the flash plays, uh, but we might also see him run backwards and lose nine yards. Right. Uh, this year, he is a complete receiver. Uh, Kirby Smart, the Georgia coach, was asked about Tony, and he says what he sees is a guy who's become a an all-around polished receiver beyond the utility stuff, meaning that, you know, he was good for a, a danger in the return game or uh, in the round or some kind of short pass. Whenever he gets the ball, you have to, you have to pay him uh, attention to him. But now he's just become a really good receiver. I mean, he's got mm-hmm. six touchdown catches. He's had four or more receptions in every game this season, Adam. So uh, this isn't a fluke. What we're seeing is a guy who uh, really worked on his game. Whatever the wake-up call was for him since last season, when he, he missed most of it because of injury, he's really uh, bought into it. And you can tell he's he's come out with the kind of a, uh, a mission. I mean, I think there's a – real chance that, you know, he has a future at the next level, if nothing more than, you know, just a return guy alone. But now I think there's, you know, you're starting to hear some chatter about him. This guy's becoming a complete player, can maybe really help some teams. And right now he's helping the Gators, and they hope that he uh, he can help them out on Saturday against Georgia because when you look at the matchup, he does present a wild card in that game uh, that you, you definitely favor Florida with. Yeah, there's no question about it. Um, yeah, it's also been a huge help for the Gators that Kyle Trask is doing what he's doing. And I guess it's consistent with what a low-key guy he is. And he's not going to generate a lot of headlines because he doesn't say incendiary things. He doesn't celebrate a lot or toot his own horn. But, I mean, the fact that through four games, he's thrown the most touchdown passes of anyone in SEC history. I mean, that's like somehow this odd footnote in what should be a headline, but because he doesn't draw much attention to himself, it seems like uh, in, in a way his historic efforts so far have somewhat slipped under the radar. Yeah, that was a one that you know even surprised me when that came out after the uh, the victory over Missouri because just in recent history you figured Joe Burrow probably had that many last year. Sure. And of course, what's happening here with Trass? I mean, it's not like they've had any cupcake games. I mean, they've been four SEC games, so he's doing it against good competition, against the conference opponents, and playing a very high level. Dan Mullen loves the way he's managing in the offense. And, you know, he got hit the other night, throws that interception. Jarvis Ware returns it for a touchdown. They're down seven to six. And just for a moment, you're like, mm, boy, Missouri, Florida, they've had some weird games. Mm-hmm. Where's this one heading? But Kyle Trask made that thought irrelevant because, you know, he comes back out and drives them down the field. And, of course, the the second touchdown pass to Tony was just a beautiful pass where he led him uh, into the secondary and threw a perfect lofted touchdown pass to him. Um, Again, 345 yards, four more touchdowns. 
he, he is a low key guy. That's who he is. That's not going to change. Uh, if he ends up continuing on this pace and somehow gets to New York and uh, is in the Heisman race or what it, you know, he's not going to go up there and do a dance or anything. If he, <laughs> if he were to win the Heisman, but you know, Gator fans are by now used to this, the national fans and the media, they're, they're, they're paying more attention to him now because of what he's doing on the field. But if they're expecting some kind of uh, quote this week about, you know, Georgia and uh, trying to fire up the team, he's not going to do that publicly. <laughs> um, I mean, it'd be crazy if all of a sudden trash just starts, uh, it starts talking trash. Like, wait a minute, yeah. where, where did this come from? That yeah. would be, that would be a total uh, personality shift. Yeah. He'd probably, be uh, instantly evaluated with some kind of personality disorder. <laughs> Wait, it is 2020. Anything is possible. That, that is um, true. And if we're talking about anomalies here in 2020, we thought we knew what the Gator defense was through the first few games they played, and then we saw a totally different defense against Missouri. Now, some of that you chalk up to Missouri is not a great offensive team, but even I mean, on a fundamental level, Scott, this defense looked very, very different. And the question most people have is why? I think you know, it goes back to exactly what Ty Grantham urged the defense to do last week. And he says, the, you know, he talked about it's not like they're going to change the scheme or they're going to have a, an influx of new players to throw in there. It was about attitude. They had to come out and play that aggressive attacking style and more physicality that the defense is accustomed to under Grantham. And I think you just saw them play faster. Uh, they looked faster. They were more aggressive. Uh, they, they were attacking. You know, you it wasn't just one guy or two guys around the ball. A lot of those tackles at the end of Missouri plays, you have four, five, and six Gators right there ready to make the play. And I think that resulted in, what, Missouri 248 yards, which they were aver- – uh, the Gators were giving up an average of 495 a game going into that. So you're talking about 248. My math's kind of bad, but I think that's right about half of what they are normally giving up. Uh, so that was a big defensive performance for Florida, uh, one indicative of uh, what they want to do, one that they will would love to replicate against Georgia. Uh, and they did it, Adam, I think just as impressive as anything is they did it, you know, missing some key pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're missing Marco Wilson, Donovan Steiner, uh, Sean Davis in the secondary, all three guys who are regular parts of the rotation. The boost was they got Kyrie Campbell back up front. I think that certainly helped. Uh, and now going into Georgia, uh, they're expecting, uh, I think, most of those guys back in the secondary. So they're going to be with a, a more of a full complement of their regular rotation. So we'll see how it plays out. But I think it was attitude and, and some of the guys they threw in there uh, Rashad Torrance, uh, the young player in the secondary, I think had four tackles. Patrick Moore, even a walk-on who got some time. He had a pass breakup, a couple of tackles. So the guys who they relied on uh, through just having to build depth this year with the COVID situation and never knowing for week to week who who's going to be in there, I think that certainly played to their favor. Uh, some guys got opportunities maybe they otherwise wouldn't have. And they delivered. You mentioned Kyrie Campbell, and I know Dan Mullen has been frustrated that they haven't been able to have their full complement of guys, especially on defense, really in any game so far this season. But uh, a lot of people saw what Campbell did and thought, well, 
maybe he's the most important piece on that defense because of what he did to bolster the line. Uh, is that what you saw? And, and how big is that going to be moving forward, do you think? Well, I think he's definitely an important piece of the defense. I don't know if I'd label him as the most important piece. I think uh, it's, you know, it's amplified considering that he did return and the defense had its best game of the season. Uh, and he, no doubt he contributed. I mean, he, he only had one tackle. It was that four-yard loss on Roundtree, so it was a flash play. And it came on third and two, and he dropped him for a four-yard loss, and Missouri has the punt. So it, it was an important play. I just think that, you know, you had guys all around the ball. I mean, Jeremiah Moon had a sack. Brenton Cox Jr. had a fumble uh, mm-hmm. recovery, and it seemed like he was very active around the field. Uh, those young secondary that we talked about, um, I just think it was a it was a classic team team effort. Uh, I don't know if one guy made it all happen, but having Kyrie Campbell back, you know, if you ask Dan Mullen and Ty Grantham, they're going to say, "Yeah, we want him in there instead of not having him in there." Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, it worked out in their favor. It worked out exactly like Kyrie Campbell, you know, hopes I'm sure too. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let's talk about the uh, the elephant in the room. There was an incident during this game. <laughs> that uh that you know got heated pretty quickly and and then just as rapidly uh got pretty out of control. You know, you were there, you got to see it all play out. I'm curious for you know what you saw that took place there and then more importantly the aftermath of it and how it affects this weekend. Yeah, in real time it was it was interesting because you know, I'm watching the ball go down to the end zone on the Hail Mary and I really didn't see the the late hit on Kyle Trask. And but the so you know the ball falls incomplete. And the next thing I notice is Dan Mullen kind of running out on the field, and and some players you know start drawing back and forth. I'm like, what's going on? And then of course it quickly escalated from there. It it was one of those incidents you never want to see. I mean, you know the guys were throwing punches, and I saw you know getting pushed down. You had coaches, you had mm-hmm. uh, you had personnel, uh, team personnel, you had law enforcement officials. So it was. It was uh, one of the uh, wilder scenes that I've ever seen at a football game, that's for sure. And, you know, it, it carried on for a couple minutes. And then, of course, you know, Dan Mullen got the crowd charged up with his, uh, you know, hand claps and just raising his arms. And, I mean, it, it certainly energized the building. I mean, there's no doubt about that. It woke up everybody. And it woke up the Gators in the second half. I think they came out and you saw what they were able to do in the second half. I mean, mm-hmm. even Kyle Trask, he looked like he was ready to come out there and run over some people with a couple of nice runs. Uh, and then, of course, the SEC had it say later this week when they reprimanded and fined Mullen. Uh, for the Gators in the big picture, you know, it probably worked out pretty well with Zach Carter and Antoine Powell, the only guys who were ejected. And then, of course, the only guys who faced subsequent penalty going into the Georgia game where they'll set out the first half. Uh, anytime you, you're without Zach Carter, that doesn't help you. Uh, but it could have been worse probably. I think Missouri got the worst of it because they had more players who were will be suspended their next game uh, after the league made its announcement. But Also against you know, Georgia, just by chance. Also against Georgia, yes. So, you know, in the end, um, I guess a couple of final thoughts for me is just Luckily, nobody, you know, got hurt or anything of that nature. Uh, It's an ugly incident that you don't like to see, but I also understand it's an emotional game. Uh, You know, people, Dan Mullen has, you know, come under criticism again this week for maybe being too emotional in that sense, and and his players 
feeding off of that. You know, it, it happens. Uh, the bottom line is they were upset at the hit. It was a it was a late hit. I thought I still you know don't understand why there wasn't a flag called because we do live in an age where whether it's college or pro football, I mean the quarterback is protected now more than ever. And mm-hmm. that was just a classic kind of a cheap shot hit that wasn't called. So I mean the Gators had a right to be upset, but you know they got you know you got to handle it better. And again, you, you, you're just glad that it doesn't. No one was hurt, and that it it's not going to have more of an impact on on this week's matchup with Georgia, because uh, that would have been very unfortunate if if that had been the case. But um, one of those learning lessons, Adam. I'm sure that's a big message uh, internally and externally. Yeah, no question. Um, well, let's talk about Georgia as we segue into what's happening this week. You know, when when I look at the Bulldogs, I see in a lot of ways. It's almost one of the Will Muschamp teams, um, maybe a 2012 Muschamp team where you've got a really, really elite defense, but you've got quarterback issues and therefore an offense you can't really rely on other than to try and, you know, ground and pound. Maybe George deserves a bit more credit than that, but certainly with what we've seen from Stetson Bennett, um, they're not an, a great offense, and they've struggled at that position. So it seems like this is a real contrast of Florida, an offensive juggernaut, against Georgia, very much rooted in their defense. Yeah, it's a Georgia team that's it's a run-based offense uh, with a young quarterback in Stetson Bennett, and uh, he's been inconsistent. You know, when you look at what he's done, uh, I mean, they're all they've George even when they've had really good quarterbacks. You know, they've always loved to run the ball. Uh, but the disparity in this matchup, it is it is pretty uh, transparent. You know, Florida is one of the best passing teams in the country. Uh, Georgia, as you said, they've been grinding out these these wins. I mean, it mm-hmm. wasn't exactly pretty what they did against Kentucky last week, but they they left Lexington a winner, and and now it's going to be a chance to see how that matchup works out in Jacksonville because this matchup has been anticipated for so long Adam really since last season when you know it was a game where Georgia I think had eight possessions last year Florida had seven that's probably the kind of game that Georgia would love to have again this year Uh, both coaches were asked this week about you know the the winner of this game I think in the last 14 meetings is the one that had the most rushing yards Mm -hmm. so you know, how important is that going to be on Saturday if Georgia is the con- ball control team and they have the ball and Florida is the quick strike offense? So uh, it's a, it's a, it's one of those matchups or one of those questions that it's that's what makes the games intriguing, you know. How's mm-hmm. it going to play out? So good question. I, I think the pressure is on both teams, obviously, because it's really the driver's seat for the SEC East is on the line. Georgia's favored. They've won three in a row. You flip it over to Florida. They've lost three in a row. Dan Mullen's 0-2. He knows that with the trajectory of the program, the next hurdle along the evolution is to beat Georgia. Mm-hmm. And this is probably the best chance he's had to do that since he's been at Florida. So uh, I'm ready, man. I'm ready to see <laughs> how it plays out. <laughs> well, And also some, some key absences for Georgia as well on that elite defense. Uh, for very different reasons in terms of why they won't have some guys available, uh, but no doubt uh, very significant when you're trying to to put those chess pieces on the board. Yeah, I mean the Georgia's defense—that's their calling card. So they've 
they lost five starters uh, in the Kentucky win, you know, who were either questionable or out for the game. Obviously, the most severe one was Richard LeCount, the All-American mm-hmm. candidate at safety. Fortunately, I guess uh, Kirby Smart said he's out of the hospital and he's actually returned uh, to the team as far as, you know, being able to do some rehab and stuff. He's not going to play Saturday. Yeah, he was in he was in a car accident after their game. They got back from Kentucky, and then later that night he was in a, a car accident. So it's, I mean, again, you, you're hearing reports about that, and it's on Monday. He's in the ICU. That's yeah. at that point, you're you're not worried about if someone's going to play in a football game or not. That was a, a serious situation for him. Yeah, it was, and you're just glad that he's. I guess it wasn't life threatening, and he seems to be doing well considering the circumstances. But mm-hmm. yeah, both sides are, you know, Georgia. It seems has more question marks in terms of player availability than Florida at this point. That's saying something considering Florida, you know, had the COVID layoff and they were still missing some guys last week against Missouri. But this week, the good news was, you know, they haven't had any positives since last uh, week. Uh, So, you know, things are starting to, the clouds are starting to part a little bit on the Gators, Adam, but, None of that matters, you know, if they go over to Jacksonville and lay an egg, then we're, mm-hmm. you're back to square one. So it's really just – I mean, it's hard to over, overemphasize how big of a game this is for both programs. But I think for Florida, you know, the fans, they just want to get back on the uh, the winning side of this rivalry. Obviously, it means a lot to, to Dan Mullen and his staff with what they've done here at Florida. He's 24-6 and six in his first 30 games. Uh and now he's got a chance to really get his – he's had some nice wins at Florida, had a couple bowl wins. This would be his biggest win if they could beat Georgia. Hmm. No, it's – I mean, the, the narrative that you're talking about is, I think, fascinating because Florida has not lost four in a row to Georgia since the early 80s when this rivalry was in a very different place. That was pre-Spurrier and uh, very much during the Vince Dooley era where this was in often in oftentimes not a very competitive game with the way that Georgia dominated it. So I think what, what you're saying is spot on though, Scott. This is this is the next step for the program because if you look right now at, at where the SEC East is, even in this strange year, it's very difficult. It's funny because it's sort of like what we're all looking at as, as the election results come in. Well, you need this state that, to have a path. It's hard to find a path to the SEC championship if you lose this game on Saturday. So if yeah. Florida's going to get to that next hurdle... Uh, th- th- this is it. This is how I think we're going to know if Florida is going to take that next step forward this season, or if it's going to be a not quite there yet. Have to try again next year. Yeah, I mean this. This is the opportunity they've waited on. They've been building toward this point. Uh, they have the offense that you know Mullen has kind of built here and and worked toward. They have the pieces. I mean, they really do. The defense. They got the optimism of the performance last week against Missouri, they're getting players back. So momentum wise, you look at it and you, you kind of like Florida's chances, but you know, that Georgia excellent defensively, even with some players uh, uncertain for Saturday. I, and you, you match up, it's the classic great offense against great defense. And then it, oftentimes we talk about these kind of matchups, Adam, and it turns out that something fluky happens. I'll never forget the, uh, the game a few years ago when I think Florida had lost three in a row and they, they, they killed Georgia by rushing for like 400 and some yards and Matt Jones and Kevin Taylor ran wild. And I think Treon Harris threw the ball six times. (laughs) So it was one of those, one of the flukier games probably 
in the series. Uh, I'm sure Florida would take that kind of win Saturday, but I would I would think they would prefer that Kyle Trask and company just go out there and do what they've been doing. And the defense shows that continued improvement and the get out of there with the win. But it, it's going to be a tough tough game. I mean, it's not going to be easy. Yeah, it's going to be a different Florida-Georgia game as well with uh, very limited capacity like we've seen everywhere else around the country. Um, I want to move on to our, our PAT now, Scott. And uh, I mentioned the election. This is not a political podcast, but obviously we've <laughs> all been watching what's been happening. Uh, and one of the stories that, you know, unless you're in the South or in Alabama, you may not have really heard about is that uh, former Auburn coach Tommy Tuberville uh, won a Senate seat in Alabama, which I thought was was interesting because we know there are more Alabama fans than Auburn fans, and I assume that means a lot of Alabama fans voted for a former Auburn coach, which, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have thought that would happen considering the, the level of hate between Alabama and Auburn. Um, but it, it's led to, you know, other uh, college football coaches. Nick Saban was asked, would you ever run for office? Not surprisingly, I think he said no very quickly and dismissed the question as being uh, probably a waste of time. He dismisses a lot of questions. He dismisses like that. a lot of questions. Um, it got me thinking a little bit. Well, what other sports figures, not necessarily college football coaches, what other figures from sports do we see maybe having a political future? Uh, and and this is again in a world where Jesse the Body Ventura went from pro wrestling to being the governor of Minnesota. So. Anything yes. can happen these days, as we've seen in terms of people that become political leaders. Uh, who who do you think we may see in the future uh, m- make a run at, at elected office? Well, Adam, that's, I mean, considering that it seems to be usually guys who have a lot of muscles because you mentioned Jesse the body. <laughs> and, of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's true. That's true. He, he was a professional weightlifter and actor. Right. I mean, he was the governor of California. Uh, you know, you think of guys like nowadays, like he, although he's not a pro athlete, he's now a professional sports owner or a league owner, The Rock. Yeah. You could see yeah. The Rock maybe someday. I don't know. He he could probably win an election here, uh, here or there. I don't know if he'd run in California or Florida. You know, he's a Miami guy, but I think yeah, he probably yeah. lives in Hollywood these days. But in terms of your big-time famous athletes today, boy, we all know LeBron James has been very outspoken mm-hmm. in the last several months. I would have no doubt that if he went back in a few years and resettles in Cleveland or his home state of Ohio, I'm guessing he probably is going to have a pretty good chance to win some kind of election up in Ohio. So, you know, I don't know if we're ever going to see like your elite, elite athletes because the, the political game, let's face it, as nasty as a college football rivalry is. Oh, mm-hmm. that's yeah. got nothing on a political <laughs> rivalry. I mean, we've seen it. It's the nastiest game that I think man has ever created. But hey, what about Tom Brady? Could Tom Brady run for office somewhere and win? Probably. I mean, given the way the Bucks are playing, maybe in, in Florida yeah. he could. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I think that that's an interesting point. And to what you said about LeBron, I think he may be almost too famous. Yeah. And have too much at stake to get in at that level. I think, though, a guy from the NBA that I thought of that, that may may go that direction is someone like Chris Paul. Because he's yeah. obviously a, a highly successful player who's coming to the end of his career and has been more and more outspoken. And, and as we've seen over the course of this year, a lot of athletes that have become more engaged politically because of the climate and some of the things that have happened. So it's someone like that I could see maybe going that road, but it is hard to see someone at LeBron's level who is 
very invested in again he's producing movie he's got a whole empire someone at that level might not want to get into this game as you said as nasty as it is but i could see someone like chris paul uh who you know he's been the leader of the uh the nba players association for years so he's got that union experience that's the type of person i think might go down that path no i agree i mean i know charles barkley's talked about it in, in recent years but i don't think he's ever actually going into an election uh you know, I, I'm. If you follow, like, there's a baseball Hall of Famer. He's he passed away recently, but Jim Bunning. I mean, he was a a mm-hmm. big time Hall of Fame pitcher for the Phillies and Tigers in the '60s. And you know, he went into politics afterward and had a really successful career. Uh, so it's been done. There'll be more to do it. Uh, but you know, as far as people in today's uh, landscape, it's it's fun to kind of speculate. But I don't I don't know. Which one I there, there's some I would probably vote for, some I wouldn't. But uh, <laughs> so yeah, I don't know if there's some future politicians among our pro athletes or whatever. Maybe, maybe you know, I would have loved to see the HBC run for office. I think that'd <laughs> been, if nothing else, it would have been an entertaining campaign, a fun campaign. You know? It would have been a fun campaign. I may have volunteered on that one just to go <laughs> along for the ride, but I don't think that's in his future. But hey, we'll see. We'll see if Tommy Tuberville is the. Uh, uh, if he's if he was worth the vote of those Alabama fans, I'm sure if he wasn't, they'll let him know pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> the constituents will make their voices heard. Yes. Um, yeah. No, I don't think there's any question about that. Um, well, in any case, it's a big week for the Gators. It's Florida, Georgia. It's different, but it's still Florida, Georgia, and it's still a very very significant game with all the stakes for what this season will ultimately be. Uh, Scott, of course, will be there. You can follow him on Twitter at Gators Scott and check, and check out the opening kickoff and all of his coverage on FloridaGators.com. Uh, Scott, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. All right, Adams. Thanks, buddy. Florida and Georgia are two of the premier programs in the nation, so it's never a surprise to see recruiting battles come down to those two rivals. For redshirt freshman Naquan Wright, that decision almost never came to pass, as he faced the type of adversity in his past most of us only see in our nightmares. But before getting to that part of his story, we began by talking about how it felt to be back in action following the three-week pause. Of course, we would want to be out there because you work extremely hard, but once you really think about it, the bright side, we went out there, we was fresh. We handled the COVID situation pretty well, I think. And now uh, we back to rolling. Yeah, and, and the offense in particular looked pretty sharp despite having such a long layoff. What were you guys doing during the COVID shutdown to stay on track moving toward that Missouri game despite not being in a traditional practice setting? It's kind of crazy because we really couldn't do nothing. We was like, everyone was isolated. So, I mean, we was on like, we was basically on lockdown. Now. I mean, in a nutshell, we was on lockdown to be real. I mean, uh, we would just have like two team meetings, but. There wasn't like no position meetings, like going over the plays. The team meeting was basically on basically on the schedules moving forward on how we're going to handle the situation. So I mean, uh, it all just came at us at once on Monday, and I think I think we handled it well. We went out there. I think we played well. We could have played better as a whole offense, defense, and special teams. But we're just gonna clean up some things this week and uh, go after those Bulldogs. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the game this weekend, obviously the first half ended kind of in a, a you know surprising way with the, the little fight that broke out. But it did clearly show that everyone on that team has Kyle Trask's back. 
What makes him such a strong leader for the offense and for the team in general that it generated that type of response when, when he was threatened? Probably say uh, he's the quarterback. I mean, it's his team. He's been in the program a while. He's pretty much an old guy. I mean, uh, no one <laughs> wants their quarterback to get uh, attacked. No one wants the quarterback to get touched. I mean, take it all the way back to youth days. You don't. Nobody hits the quarterback. So, I mean, when you think about it, even, even on the next level, NFL, college, wherever you go at, Nobody touched the quarterback. And, I mean, that was just the rule. I mean, he's a leader. We're going to rally behind that guy. And if, if it was anyone else, we still going to rally behind him no matter what. We'll get back to uh, Georgia specifically in a few minutes. But I want to talk a little bit about your background and your story because it it's a very different story from, uh, from a lot of the guys we have a chance to talk to. So let's start by taking us back to where you grew up and tell us about your family as well in those early days. I mean, I grew up in uh, Opelika. My family, my mom and dad born and raised, grandma born and raised. I'm an Opelika baby. I mean, uh, just growing up, it was pretty different. Uh, mom, dad, grandparents was gone, uh, had some things going on. So, I mean, it just forced you to, like, have to focus at a young age. And, I mean, uh, but we was well taken care of. Everything was handled. So, we didn't never have that problem. I mean, probably hats off to my uh, big sisters and brothers. They uh, took out the men. My brother, they watched us, took us where we wanted to go at. And things like that. So when when did football come into play? I know you played football from a pretty young age. What got you started down that path? Uh, honestly, it just it just runs in the family. Actually, I mean, uh, I can take it all the way back to probably uh, my grandparents. Uh, they played football. Sports is in the family. My cousin was in the major league, so we're just like all in the family. My uncle played uh, football. My dad played baseball. So it just all runs in the family. Uh, me and my cousins, we all us around the same. Me, my cousin, and my brothers all around the same age. So we started playing ball at like three, three, four years old. Wow. Were you immediately going to be a running back? Like, did you always want to be a, a running back or did you move around and play different positions along the way? So actually the order went, it was my, I had an older cousin, then mm-hmm. a brother, then me, then my younger cousin. So my older cousin played running back. So that just forced me to end up playing running back. So, I mean, I would probably say it's just a, a traditional thing, a family thing that not all of, all of us was a running back. So, I mean, it just, Something that's in the family, I see. Hmm. You're reading about your story. I know that, that Coach Wallace has been a, a really important influence in your athletic career. Can you tell us about him and, and how he became such a key figure for you? Uh, he's more than a coach, I say. He's family. He was not my first coach because my uncle was my first coach. But I played for my uncle my first year. Then I went over to uh, Daniel Bears and played there in 2007. And then when we transitioned back to Bunch Park from there on out, I was uh, turned into the hands of Coach Rowan. Then ever since then, man, he uh, at first he was just a coach, a coach doing his job, and then it just grew up on. Uh, I mean, our whole team stuck together from the age about give or take nine years old all the way to high school. All of us stuck together. Once we got to high school, we had to separate. Uh, but like in Optimus, all of us was together. Uh, he treated all of us the same. Uh, he's in communication with all of us. He just more than he's like a big brother slash uncle slash father, like father figure. He's a good dude. Uh, he's going to pick you up. He's going to mold you. He's going to show you the ropes on how to be a better man. Him Himself, he played uh, basketball in high school. He was very talented. So he already know what to teach us on when we was in Optimus trying to get to high school. So he had uh, taught us, like, what to expect on a high school level. Just so happened, he ended up being my high school coach. So, I mean, uh, it was a blessing. Yeah, I said earlier that your story is a unique one, and I want to talk about the the big event, obviously, that changed the whole course of your life. Um, when you were 11, you were practice, you were on the practice field, 
And then something happened that obviously, you know, no one was prepared for. Tell us about that day and, and how that changed your life. I mean, uh, it, it was a regular day. It was a regular day. We just went on. My sister going to drop me up to practice at Bunch Bar. A regular day. Uh, I mean, we just practicing towards the end of practice. We just heard uh, shots fired and coaches yelling, get down. We all get down. So as we all get down, we crawling to a safe area. But I don't know where a safe area be at when it's just a you're in the middle of grass and open area. Mm-hmm. But we were just crawling. And then a bullet ricocheted off the ground and went through my uh, armpit and came out my shoulder. Hmm. So what what happens after that? I mean, I know that at one point your your family was told you had passed away inadvertently. I mean, tell us what happens after that. Uh, right, uh, It's crazy because right after, after I found I got shot, I think I yelled. It was like I'm hit. And I think my un- my uncle was coaching at the park, too. And then my uh, and then Coach Rowe was there, Coach Wallace, he was there too. So uh, the ambulance had them came, ambulance rushed. I got in the ambulance, my uncle got in with me, and then I asked the uh, the paramedics make sure he grab my cleats, don't leave my cleats because I need them. I have a game this weekend. Oh man! So uh, I get to the hospital. My uncle he rides with me all the way there. My family rushed there. Then as I'm going to the hospital, my mom told me like once everything got over. She had got a call that I was dead. Mm. And then when she got that call, she said she just went to praying because she didn't know what to what to expect. And then my uncle, who went to the hospital with me, had called her and told her to come on to the hospital. I'm still alive. And then through the process, the doctor was just like, do I feel this in my right arm? Do I feel this? Do I feel that? And I picked my arm up, it dropped down. The bullet had damaged my nerves and my shoulder. So my hand was like locked up for a couple of months. And then... Uh, I mean, my family was very supportive, like they always been. On the supportive side, it was second nature. They always been supportive, whether it's a birthday, whether it's a graduation, whether it's a high school game, optimist game. They very supportive. Everybody going to rally up and uh, come support whoever uh, they have to support, whether it's me, my brother, my sister, or my mom having a dinner sale, or somebody getting married, someone going to church, getting baptized. Whatever it is, they all supportive. Like, our family is big on that. I think my grandma did a great job of raising up her kids and then I guess that just forced them to be supportive also. I'm curious when you go through something like that how does that change your outlook on not just football but also on I mean life in general how does that change your life once you go through this and come out the other side? Probably say going through that I mean it just lets you know don't take life for granted you understand that uh life not your own I mean if I could go back in time I wouldn't I would not change the uh situation I mean, I, I let it all play out because God make no mistakes. He know what he's doing, so I, I don't question him. Uh, I mean, I have good and bad days. I mean, I trust in him because he's the author of my life. So, I mean, I trust in him. I know he not. I know he didn't make a mistake. With that process, I mean, uh, it just drew me more closer to God, drew my family more closer to God, brought us more together. I mean, it, it, just, it just changed a lot of lives around me. So I would not, I would not uh, go back in time and change that situation. Hmm. You mentioned the nerve damage you had, and I, I didn't know the part where you literally asked for your cleats while you're in the ambulance, keeping your eyes on the prize. Um, how did you continue playing? Because then you went on and kept playing despite not having a lot of feeling in your hand, which as a running back, I mean, that's pretty important. How did you manage to change your game to physically work with what you could and couldn't do? So actually, I, uh, we had, I got shot on a Tuesday, I believe. We had a game Saturday. So I thought I was going to go out and play that uh, that Saturday, but unfortunately the doctor was like I cut, and then and then my uh, 
the nerves in my, like my hand was stuck. Imagine like balling up a fist. That's how my hand was stuck for a while. Wow. Then I just got enrolled into therapy. I went there. Uh, I was there for only six months. Doctors say I won uh, play again. So I was there for six months. I just attacked uh, therapy as a, if it was just a practice, getting ready for a game. I mean, I knew what was going to happen in the end. Like, my faith been high in God. No matter what the situa- situation is, my faith is in him. I know he's going to handle it. Uh, he blessed me with another opportunity to play the game of football again. So, I mean, it was just a fun uh, – I missed it the game. I missed it being out there with my teammates. I missed it going to war with my brothers. And then I just didn't want to let my family down. I mean – they were so supportive, so I just want to return the love that they that they show for me. As you got through this, you grew, you got better and better. You start getting offers from all across the country. What's that like when you know all of a sudden you're getting all of the big programs and they are on you and they want you badly? What's that like when you start getting all of that attention and trying to process what those opportunities mean? Oh, first and foremost, uh, you just got to uh, thank God that uh, that He's putting you in position to receive those offers. So I mean, I just I just thank him instantly. I thank him once those schools went rolling in. Uh, I thank him and I just let him guide me and tell me where to go and what school to pick. I mean, I know, like I said before, he makes no mistakes. I mean, I had a uh, ninth grade coming in. I had a couple of schools. Tenth grade, we won state. I had a couple of schools. Then going into my junior year, I actually break my ankle on both sides. Mm-hmm. So instantly, like adversity hit me again, and then and then instantly just another test. Just kept my faith in him. I knew that he would guide me. I had schools back off, schools that uh, that I thought would uh, still be recruiting me. But when you think about it, it's a business, so those guys have family to feed. I mean, if you're not producing, who going to want you? So, I mean, when you look at the business side of it, you respect it. And, I mean, you just move on and lock in on the schools that is recruiting you. When you came into the program, I mean, it was a crowded running backs room. Uh, which guys showed you the ropes and really made you feel welcome in that room? Being in the running back room, you going in, you don't really like coming in as a freshman, you don't know those guys. So instantly you those are your competition. Like you don't know those guys. You fresh you fresh meat coming in, freshman coming in, you don't know those guys. So instantly being a high school my kid, that's competition. Uh you gonna put up a wall, you compete with those guys, you trying to start. Coming in in June, as it went on, the training, training, we all just grew up on. I mean, uh Hearing Malik Davis' story, he, he's a great, talented running back coming in his freshman year, making a huge impact. So, I mean, then you still have LaMichael Piron, who just mm-hmm. got signed to the Jets. And you have Damian, who was a highly recruited running back coming in. So, I mean, all those guys played a huge part in uh, my development. I took something, I'd probably say, from each one of those guys' game. I can say there's no jealousy in the room. All of us uh, feed off one another energy. Uh, if one lacking, the other one is going to boost the other one up or vice versa. In terms of your first year, so you registered last year, but you did get to play a little bit. I mean, obviously, everyone comes in and wants to play, right? Everyone wants the ball. But having that redshirt year and being able to kind of stand back and watch a lot more than, than do, uh, what what did you take away from that? How did you grow during your redshirt season? To be honest, coming in as a freshman, uh, you're right. You want to play. Mm-hmm. It's just a process. I mean, you just got to trust it. And uh, now, being in uh, this generation, in this day and time, you only need one year or a couple of games just to get the opportunity to go to the NFL. So, I mean, I'm not in a rush. Uh, God uh, has his hand over my life. If if this wasn't the game for me or I wasn't supposed to be here, he would have took me out nine years ago. So, I mean, I have a purpose. So, I mean, uh, and I'm going to fulfill that purpose no matter 
I play this year, play next year, sit out three years, get hurt tomorrow. I know that I'm going to fulfill the purpose that he has for my life. So I'm not moved. My faith is in him. Uh, during the COVID time, a lot of us had chances to explore new hobbies, things we didn't maybe have time for before. Uh, what do you like to do when you're when you're off the field? And was maybe COVID an opportunity to, to pick up some new things for you? Oh, man. Uh, honestly, I'm just a chill league guy, but the biggest thing I like to do when I'm away from football is be with my family, be around my family. Uh, I love my family. My grandma did a great job. Uh, I probably hats off to her mom. We always get together Sundays. We get together. So, like, those type of deals, it just, it just draws me and make me, like, even go harder because family is all I got. I mean, they rally. we all rally behind one another for holidays. We're going to travel together. Uh, someone's birthday, we throwing a surprise party together. We always somehow is around each other and just celebrating life. Uh, so I was looking at some of your stuff on social media. Your Twitter, your Twitter handle is BOSSMAN, all caps, BOSSMAN. Uh, where did that name come from? What does that mean? Uh, actually, uh, so Instagram first came out about, I'm not sure exactly when Instagram came out. And then and my generation is all about social media, as you can know. Mm-hmm. And I asked my cousin, I said, you'll make me an Instagram. She's like, what you want the name to be? I say, I don't know. You just go ahead and make it. And then I'm going to just go with it. And then that's what she dialed up. I just took it and ran with it. <laughs> yeah, I just took it and ran with it. Very few people like uh, call me boss, man. So that's not that's not a thing. It's just a, it's just a Twitter, Instagram thing. I won't say it's like a nickname, but. You have some people that are said. That's a that's a solid nickname. I would go with that, right? If people are gonna call yeah. it, yeah, take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, couple of final things for you. This week is Florida Georgia, which is ironic because again, those are the, the two of the main schools you were deciding between down at the end. Um, it, are are you feeling something a little different this week? Is it is it a little heightened for you because of the your personal stake in in both schools? No, I won't say it is on me. Don't I mean. The coaches on the other side probably don't even remember they recruited me. This thing, this thing just repeats itself every year. So I mean, I, I, I doubt the coaches probably know they recruited me. I mean, I got, I got a boy. I got a couple of boys. Well, I have a boy, uh, James Cook. He's my close friend. So I mean, I know him. I mean, I want him to do well, but I want our team to get the victory. And I mean, uh, it's just a big game because Florida is in it. You feel me? Mm-hmm. Like they playing Florida, so that's the reason why it's a big game. You know, looking at Georgia, their their defense is really stout, especially up front. Their line play, it's probably among the best in the SEC. Uh, what are going to be the keys to, to breaking down that line and getting the ground game going for you, for Malik, and for Damian? I mean, our coaches did a great job of breaking down film and dialing up plays so that we can go out there and execute at a high level. So the main thing I'll say is, is just trust the plan that the coaches are dialed up together. As long as we trust the plan and and the coaching, take the coaching that uh, our coaches gave us through the week. That's why you have these to practice. So uh, to just dial up those things that our coaches gave us uh, from Monday, uh, we started on uh, Sunday because of the election. So from Sunday all the way to uh, third, uh, Saturday, uh, our coaches dialed up a nice scheme and a nice plan for us to go out there and get the win. So we just have to lock in and just trust trust our coaches' plan. As long as we stick to the script, I think we'll, we'll, we'll come out on top. Well, we certainly hope that's the case, Naquan. Thank you so much for your time, and and good luck to you this weekend and the rest of the season. Thank you. I appreciate it. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. 
Florida-Georgia kicks off at 3.30 on Saturday, and you can follow the action on CBS and the Gator Sports Network from Learfield IMG College. Then come back here next Thursday for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Stay safe and go Gators.